Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hello everyone, my name's Sean. I'm a program producer here at ACME. Um, I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we're meeting tonight, uh, the Wurundjeri people, and to pay my respect to their elders, both past and present. Uh, now it's my pleasure to welcome you all to tonight's session of Talking TV. Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the program, Talking TV is ACME's series of ongoing events that explore the small screen and discusses uh, topical TV content from uh, TV series, both past and present. Uh, the program's covered such shows as Hannibal, Orange is the New Black, and Degrassi, and has even covered Game of Thrones before, which we uh, first examined after the first season back in 2012. Uh, that panel of speakers in 2012 explored everything from on-screen violence to uh, some pretty killer erotic fan fiction that paired Jon Snow and Rob Stark together. <laughs> Uh, in an oddly romantic and very explicit incestuous love story. Uh, there's a podcast of that first edition. If you haven't had a listen to it, I highly recommend you revisit that. Um, the writer of that piece of fan fiction, Clementine Ford, was due to appear on tonight's panel. Uh, she sends her apologies. She's actually stuck up in Sydney at the moment. Um, but she has recorded a very special treat. Uh, so stay tuned to the end of the session for that one. Um, leading tonight's exploration, though, is uh, this evening's host, Stephanie Van Schilt. Uh, Steph is the co-editor of The Lifted Brow. She's the co-host of the Rereaders podcast and was previously the TV columnist at Kill Your Darlings. Uh, her writing has featured in various local, international and online publications, including Crikey, Metro and Junkie. And she's currently completing a PhD in creative writing at Monash. Uh, joining Steph on the Acme couch tonight is Luke Ryan, Mel Campbell, and Luke Buckmaster, all of whom you're uh, about to be introduced to very shortly. Uh, but before we begin, a few spots of housekeeping. Uh, for firstly, like I said, we do podcast these sessions, so if you could turn off your mobile phones, that would be ace. Um, the doors that you all entered in are now locked for the evening, so if you need to leave, it's not a, it's not a red wedding creepy thing. It's just because of the aircon. If you You're do not need hosting. to leave, <laughs> not the brief if you do need to leave, uh, there's another exit just in here. So if you need to go to the bathroom or anything, just pop out the side entrance. Uh, and finally, we will have some time for Q and A at the end. So if you have any burning issues to ask any of the panel members, just hold on to those and be ready for that at the end. Uh, but for now, please join me in welcoming Steph and the panel. Burning issues always just sounds so wrong. <laughs> um, so winter is well and truly here in Melbourne, so thanks for coming out tonight on this cold evening uh, for the Talking TV event. For many, this will not be your first time in the studio, because uh, the event isn't called Back to Westeros for nothing. But if you're not familiar with the format, just a brief overview. I'll be hosting, as Sean said, and introducing our three panellists who will be focusing on, a speci on specific separate topics each. Between each guest's presentation, we'll have a chat here on the couch and ask you to hold the questions until the end, where we'll throw it over to the audience. There'll be a mic because, as Sean said, uh, it's a podcast, so all of the people who are all sad Jon Snow about missing out will be able to check it out online soon. I should also issue a spoiler alert of sorts here. 
I'm guessing y'all wouldn't be here tonight if you hadn't already watched all of season one to five of the show. Um, I'm not sure about spoilers for the book because personally I haven't read them. Controversial. Um, <laughs> and I'm unlikely to do so, but I'll leave that up to the discretion of the panel and the audience. But I know how you all feel about spoilers because I'm basically, we feel the same. So I'm issuing this as a very clear spoiler alert. We want you to feel like royalty tonight, but don't act like Joffrey or Stannis or Cersei or Ramsay Bolton um, or, well, any of the assholes in our <laughs> beloved Westeros because we don't want to make you walk of shame out of here. We all know how that goes down. Speaking of how shit goes down, we should also issue a graphic content warning because there will be a few clips playing. Um, as Sean mentioned, I'm joined by Mel Campbell in between a Luke sandwich. I wasn't going to make some lame joke about you being the House of Ryan and you being the House of Buckbuster, but <laughs> I thought that was... Oh, yeah, make so it. I still kind of made it. Yeah, but it was lame, so I decided not to. And just explain and just it did. instead. Yeah. <laughs> That's how comedy works, right? Um, so first up is Luke, who is a... Uh, Luke Ryan is a Melbourne-based freelance writer and comedian, so... You should know better than I. Um, <laughs> his first book, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Chemo, was out last year, so you can get it in all good bookstores now. He's written for a number of publications, including The Age, Smith Journal, The Lifted Brow, The Vine, Crikey, Kill Your Darlings, and many more, and performs with a sketch comedy outfit called Lords of Luxury. Uh, as I said before, I haven't read the works of George R.R. R. Martin, but I'm looking forward to hearing from Luke, who'll be discussing the interplay between the book series and the television show, and how season five basically ditched old mate Martin's universe to establish its own. Uh, so, welcome Luke Ryan. Thank you all. Um, I did have a presentation that was going to go with this, uh, but I think we've been having some technical difficulties and have been in a like last-ditch attempt to try and update all the system components in time for this session so that the keynote could play. I don't think we've made it in time. Oh, oh no. Well, you're going to miss out on some killer visual gags, I tell you now. <laughs> All right, so yes, I am talking a bit about um, the interplay between the books and the TV show and basically the fact that like upon watching season five, uh, everything I thought I knew as a smug reader of the books kind of got thrown out the window. Um, but yes, here we go. So up until this season, my favourite thing about Game of Thrones was the phrase, just you wait. As in, oh, you thought Drogon burning that slaver's face off was crazy? Just you wait until Rob Stark gets married. And then I'd laugh and run away like Newman from Seinfeld. <laughs> As one of those dedicated souls who'd actually read the books, my sense of superiority knew no bounds. I was always three episodes ahead of my plotting TV-only friends, always on hand to answer any offhand questions they may have had about Aegon the Conqueror or Rhaegar and Lyanna and who their moody-ass spawn might have been. <laughs> Curious about the creepy man in the tree that the 12-year-old boy has gone to live with? I'm your guy! <laughs> Want to know a bit more about the finer workings of Bravosi trade practice? No, that is fair enough. <laughs> Changes when they occurred were usually interesting inflections or neat little narrative tricks that turned two storylines into one. I mean, of course getting Gendry to go to Dragonstone instead of some other misbegotten bastard of Robert Baratheon was a smart move. By the time you finish the fifth book, George R.R. R. Martin has already introduced you to more than 1,200 named characters, so anything that knocks out a dozen here or there is always going to be appreciated. Most of the time you had to admire the efficiencies introduced by wiping out all these miscellaneous arcs. They just made for a neater, more propulsive form of storytelling. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not usually a fan of genocide, but freeing me from having to think about the family politics of the fucking Greyjoy clan is next best <laughs> thing to a national service. <laughs> and then season five occurred, 
And I may as well have been 500 miles north of the wall going on a mystical romp with Uncle Benjamin for all the idea <laughs> I had about what's going on right now. So here is how I experienced the last five seasons. Season one, dominance. Oh, so you think Ned Stark is the main character? That's so cute. Have a candy. <laughs> Season two, confidence. <laughs> that Joffrey sure is an asshole. I'm sure nothing bad will ever happen to him. <laughs> Season three, snideness. Man, how great are weddings? Don't you just love weddings? <laughs> Season four, questioning. Look, I'm pretty sure Tyrion's gonna kill his dad. Season five, <laughs> that was done in emoji form and would have appeared behind me and probably had much more comic impact at that point. I mean, let's take the White Walkers as an example. Except for the very first chapter of the very first book and Sam's unfortunate face-to-face -face encounter in season, book, season slash book three. Unfortunate in that the White Walker didn't take the opportunity to gut Sam, operate him like a meat puppet and thus kill off that entire godforsaken storyline forever. <laughs> really? Your Sam sympathises? Oh, man. You lost Sympathises. We will get back to that. He needs to be written out. Anyway, White Walkers have always been this kind of thing that you knew was coming at some point in the story and that you'd be thankful for it when you did, like the release of a new iPhone. But then suddenly Hard Home happens and you come face to face with the glam rock Ice King himself and you're like, where the fuck am I? Hard Home was the first time that the show had just completely invented an event like that and put well-known characters in the middle of it all. Weiss and Betty often flirted with the idea of getting creative before, I mean, who can forget Roz, a character invented solely so that HBO could have an excuse for explaining what was happening while a woman got naked before killing her off when she was no longer necessary, like a sex worker in King's Landing. But they never just out and out constructed an entire storyline like this before. It wasn't about getting characters from A to B more efficiently, it was just wholesale independent world building, showing something that the readers of the books had only ever guessed at. And you know what? It was really exhilarating to watch. Like, it felt like freedom. Freedom from the burden of measuring what you were watching against what you expected and hoped it to be. Even in the more recognisable aspects of the story, the creative leaps were becoming bigger and more outrageous. Sansa getting married to Ramsay, Tyrion and Varys ending up in Marine together, 90% of the Red Keep being chucked into the Sparrow's dungeons, Jorah getting grayscale, Littlefinger doing who the fuck knows what, but seemingly able to traverse hundreds of miles in the space of a couple of days. <laughs> Make no mistake, we are now in entirely novel territory. Or rather, non-novel territory, as the case may be. <laughs> Even at a simple seven-book to seven-series adaptation, Game of Thrones was doing something that nobody else had ever attempted on TV before. It is, by some margin, the most narratively complex thing to ever appear on television, or probably cinema for that matter. For five years now, it's been stretching the capacities of the medium to breaking point, with sometimes exhilarating and sometimes embarrassing consequences. I mean, you know what they say, for every red wedding, there's a summer holiday in dawn. <laughs> No one else that. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a bad storyline. Oh, oh man. So it was just like Xena, Dornish Princess. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so bad. But now Game of Thrones has transformed into something different again. Because now it's running what are essentially two entirely different versions of exactly the same story, side by side at the same time. 
It's adapting things that don't even exist yet so that the conversation is soon going to be about how the book measures up to the TV show rather than vice versa. And some of the things that occurred in the final couple of episodes, Tyrion's meeting with Daenerys, Stannis' defeat, are still being built towards in the chapter excerpts they've released from the Winds of Winter, suggesting that they probably won't happen until a third to a half of the way through that particular book. I mean, before watching the final episode, I actually thought Stannis was going to take Winterfell. Like, in the books, fuck, maybe he will. Like, you just don't know. And it just means that the day-to-day -day correlations between the show and the book barely matter anymore. It, now it's just a question of how the characters get from where they are right now to the fiery, icy climax and who's going to get there faster. I sort of feel like we're arriving at the point that F. Scott Fitzgerald described when he wrote, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. <laughs> right now, as far as I can tell, Mance Raider is both alive and dead at the same time, like some updated version of Schrodinger's cat. George R. R. Martin is often accused of having forgotten how to push his story forward. And at the end of 5,500 pages that still haven't delivered a single White Walker versus Dragon battle, that can definitely feel true. <laughs> but I think what's at play here is more the fact that GRRM, unlike almost every other fantasy author, remains ruthlessly true to his characters and world. Like, of course Danny's going to get bogged down in the Byzantine politics of Marine, because that's what happens when you invade a city. Like, of course Littlefinger will spend an entire book just sitting and plotting in the eerie because he's the kind of guy that takes that amount of time to make sure a plan is executed perfectly. Jorah and Tyrion would never sail a rowboat through the Doom of Valyria because it's the goddamn Doom of Valyria. <laughs> like, that is just an objectively insane thing to do. But for George R. R. Martin, what's important is coherency and consistency within his world rather than immediate narrative satisfaction. And reading the books can often feel like an exercise in permanently delayed release where every time you're sure that the story is turning towards one of those super neat, ultra satisfying climaxes, it just pivots slightly and uses the momentum to open up an entirely different storyline. Tyrion kills Tywin, and rather than that becoming platform for an all-out war, you suddenly find yourself neck deep in 300-odd pages of quasi-religious mumbling as the Greyjoy clans get together to try and pick a new <laughs> king. But because of TV's form and the shortcuts in world-building that are both required and permitted, you're allowed to deliver incongruous and rapid-fire plot developments and still have them feel of a piece with the world as presented. Like you sail through the Doom of Valyria because by that point all we've heard is that it's kind of dodgy rather than an instant death sentence. Jamie is sent on a diplomatically suicidal mission to Dawn, which even by Cersei's lofty standards would be a ridiculous thing to do. Sansa agrees to marry into the family that unashamedly butchered her mother and brother because she's learning how to play the Game of Thrones, guys. <laughs> Like, time and distance just ceases to have any real meaning. Characters simply arrive in a location as needed, and rather than calling bullshit, you just go, oh, well played, Varys, well played. <laughs> Narrative TV is a medium that by its sheer sensory immediacy, in the way it presents itself to us as a fully formed, automatically cohesive reality, it disinclines us to actively question the assumptions it is constantly asking us to make. Most of the time it doesn't feel like we're making any assumptions at all. The world begins and ends at the four walls of our screen. And we forgive it these lapses because it feels like it makes sense. Like, more than that, it feels good for it to make sense. We need it to make sense that it can affect us like it does. But I think this also brings to the four powerful questions about how different forms of media convey meaning in different ways, which is a banal observation on the surface, but it seems to be the root of so much of the discussion and controversy that periodically surrounds Game of Thrones. For instance, in the Sansa rape scene. 
And so, like, leaving aside the broader discussions of rape politics in Game of Thrones, like, I feel like this scene was a perfect symbol of the representational differences between words on a page and images on a screen, and how those differences deserve more than lip service when you're adapting something between the media. So I read a lot about this scene in the aftermath of it, and the automatic defence that you always saw from, from the like, people who'd read the books was, it happened in the books, and it was even worse than what you saw. And, like, that is factually undeniable. Like, in the books, it is a horrendous scene, and George really goes to town on it. But it's still quite disingenuous, because the way that we, the consumer... Hey! Oh, my God! The keynote's here! Ah! 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 He'll start again now, everyone. Just a blank one? Like, <laughs> <coughs> dominance, confidence, snideness... Oh, 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 no! Here we go. Um, we really are Magic just up ruin. to literally the final thing. There's the Glamrock Ice King. There's a little Finch. So I found <laughs> this on a list of the 10 worst Game of Thrones memes. And I don't know why, but it just makes me laugh so much. <laughs> and every time I see him now, it's just little Finch. <laughs> uh, here we go. Uh, so I had this written in the speech as sad snakes. Uh, <laughs> and they should be sad. They ruined that storyline. Yeah, <laughs> Uh, there's oh, Stannis. Stannis. Oh, sad Stannis. Oh, I just really hate the Greyjoys, guys. <laughs> and here we go. <laughs> oh, it's good to be there in the end. That was, uh, that was fun. Um, so, yeah, so, well, it was factually undeniable that this scene happened and worse in the show, in the books. Uh, it's quite, I think, a disingenuous argument because obviously the way that we consumer experience things is so vastly different between the book and the screen. Like, there's a difference between the strength of our own imaginings and the raw power of an image being shoved into our eyes and ears. I'm certainly not of the belief that has been argued in some places that such things shouldn't happen merely because Sansa's is a core character, so it's going to be worth more or going to cost us more. But I think the choice to depict it and to finish an episode with it, no less, is a really active one that they made. And you just had to ask things like, well, what did we gain by staying in the room for so long? Like, what did we come to understand about Sansa and Theon's pipe by lingering for those few extra brutal seconds? I mean, it's such a marginal measure, but it's so much more visceral affecting than any similar scene in the books. And so it's kind of hard to justify why it needed to happen. But I think this is like, it's just been a problem with Ramsay's arc wall to wall. His malevolence has always felt so exaggerated as to be pretty much meaningless. And it's a problem in the books too, but in the books Theon vanishes for more than 2,000 pages and only emerges in book five when he's been reduced to reek. So all the worst of Ramsay's torches were kind of delivered off page. But here the mere fact of visual representation, and I suspect the realities of TV contracts, means that over time, Ramsay's behaviour has just become ironically bloodless, like devoid of the dramatic tension that made Joffrey the most hated character in television history. And like, perhaps that's why when it came time for him to rape Sansa, it felt so cheap and gratuitous because mm -hmm. there was just no advancement here, just this empty recitation of a character that hadn't really changed his tune in three seasons. And then to use it in such an obvious, odious way just seemed to cheapen the show as a whole. And in this, I think the show could probably learn a lot from the books. Like, so one thing I believe that remains true across pretty much all forms of art is that more often than not, implication is a lot more powerful than depiction. Uh, for all its instantaneous visceral pleasures, the moment of revelation is also the beginning of dramatic deflation. 
So I think George R. R. Martin understands this quite well. It's why his books are such incredibly compelling, if sometimes frustrating reads. But he knows that to resolve our suspicions too quickly would be to hamstring the entire work. And so I just think that for all its visual richness and high budget pseudo cinematic style, Game of Thrones would potentially be a stronger show if it could realize the same. And that is it. Thank you. That was really interesting and funny. I'm sorry that that didn't oh, work. Oh, we got you, there in the end, hey guys. <laughs> um, just while, I guess, I don't know if you guys are going to cover it in your presentations, but we're going to have to talk about the rape scene. Yeah. I think that that is just everyone, ev like online, mm. in person, everyone was talking about the rape scene. Um, obviously, you just gave us your opinion. What do you guys have to say? And by that, I mean that particular rape scene. Not all the things <laughs> that have transpired. Yeah, yeah, I didn't actually um, see the online chatter for that because I, I watched until the whole thing was done and then I sat in a screening room. And I say screening room, but I actually mean my lounge room. <laughs> and I just smashed through it in, you know. Oh, what? you waited for the whole... I waited for Whoa. everything. Yep, mm -hmm. right, wow. until, right until the very, how did very you, end. How did you manage to avoid Survive. spoilers? Well, it's like, <laughs> yeah. well you, you can avoid spoilers, but up until a point. Mm. So mm. it's kind of... There's, there's, uh, if you're on Twitter, then you have to, you know maybe um, edit out your hashtags, yeah. GO2's mm -hmm. gone. Yeah. Um, that, so I, I watched it all in, in one big binge session and I prefer that style myself mm. rather than the traditional um, hype that's generated by broadcasting something week by week. And at the moment we're in a really interesting place because mm. the traditional networks are looking at week by week hype, they're looking at binge stuff mm. and they're wondering how to kind of go forward to find I, the middle ground. I, just like, I mean, this is a bit of a side issue to what we <laughs> will be talking about in a second, but I found it very interesting at the beginning of this season when those four episodes dropped online. Yes. Because me personally, even though um, we ended up with them on our home media system somehow, I don't know how they got there, that's weird. Um, but I didn't watch them. Like, I waited because Game of Thrones, it's like has such a strong week to week mm. culture and there is such a strong, strong I think scene thing people often watch it in groups or and but the discussion happens quite sort of organically and as much as I you know get a bit frustrated by some of the sort of you know over emphasis on some of the political aspects sometimes like it's still it feels quite I don't know like because something like Game of Thrones is almost reclaiming that appointment um and by appointment now, I think you've got about 24 hours. Like, that's your 24-hour window in which to watch it and be part of the sort of, like, overall conversation of it. Mm. But I don't know, I just found that very interesting because usually I've always been someone who would just, like, you know, if you got given a season of something that hadn't been released yet, I'd still just watch it all. But, like, mm. this time it was the first time I just went, no, I'm just going to, like, you know, wait and just artificially dole it out for but myself. Is that, we'll come back to this rape yeah. scene conversation because yeah. somehow we've managed to get <laughs> past it. But do you think that you watch it that way because you've read the books? Do you think that that is perhaps how yeah, you go maybe. through it? Yeah, maybe. Like, yeah, and maybe because I just don't have so much to gain from finding out what happens next yeah. episode. Even though, like, again, as I kind of alluded to in the speech, like, you know, it has changed a lot this season, I think. Like, you know, this season so many times, it wasn't just hard home. Like, you know, you'd just be going, I actually legitimately have no idea what's about to happen yeah. to this character. Like, you know, as soon as they start farming Sansa up to Ramsay, I was like, where did that come yeah, from? Right. Yeah. Just for the podcast people, this is great. Can I have a show of hands of who's read the books as well as watched the show? Okay, so we've got kind of like a half. A, a, yeah. a third? Yeah. I reckon a third. Mm. Thank you. Um, 
How are you going to negotiate continuing reading the books? And because when's the next one due for release? Oh, good question. No, no, no. This has always been like part of George's um, big game. Um, And like, I think it was six years for book four, five years for book five, and he's now four years into book six. It's so tragic. I read book four, and then at the end, it's like coming out in you know 1995. No, it wasn't that long ago, but it was like. You know, coming out five years ago from yeah. when I was actually reading it, you know, the next one. I just think he's he's a bit out of control of his narrative. Yeah. That's that's my vibe. I think yeah. he lost control of his narrative a long time ago. Mm. And I think the it was week meant to be by a trilogy, week hype, wasn't it? I have no idea. I haven't read a single word of the book. No, not a single right. letter. <laughs> not a character. Yeah. Um, but I think he lost control of that a long time ago. And this is some from someone who's yeah. not talking in the perspective of um, the writing being fundamentally different from form mm. to form. It's, mm. it's around the, the idea that um, you know, every week there's a new podcast, every week people are talking about it, every week there's some new video. Mm. Um, the guy who runs uh, George R. Martin's social media accounts is not George R. Martin, it's a, it's a super fan. I think he's a super, a super fan based in Sweden or something. So yeah. George R. R. Martin calls this guy up every now and then to clarify details. <laughs> about his world. Yeah. So that's what I kind of mean in that it's yeah. gone to a point where it's kind of past his, yeah, his yeah. own creations, yeah. well, which is said, interesting. Well, he hasn't he, that he's actually now got the actors from the show in mind when he's writing. Oh, wow. Characters. So that'll be really interesting mm. to see how it kind of plays out with the TV show perhaps taking over. Yeah, well, I mean, it's going to. I think they expect, and again, who knows what's going to happen, but they expect Winds of Winter to come out before the sixth season. So that should cover I'm most skeptical. of that. Oh, I know, right? But like, still, he's been if making it, noise, and they have been releasing like they've released about six chapters already. If it did come out, will you read it before? Oh, hey? absolutely. Yeah, like, Mel- uh, yeah, I'd read it. Like those books did something strange to me. I read all five of them, like 5,500 pages worth of <laughs> material in less than two months. Like oh I just couldn't You would have been stop. great to hang out with. Oh, Jesus, <laughs> I had nothing else to talk about. That's what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, maybe we'll get back onto um, Sansa after Mel's talk mm. um, because we should keep moving on. Mel Campbell is a freelance journalist and cultural critic. She, <laughs> it's true. She's not lying. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She founded the online magazine The Enthusiast and is the author of the book Out of Shape, debunking myths about fashion and fit and was the official Game of Thrones recapper for pop culture site Junkie. So clearly she's got a lot of feels, opinions and knowledge about the show. (laughs) Tonight, Mel will be discussing uh, the power, the means of power in Game of Thrones. Yep. (laughs) Power. So, obviously, when I was thinking about this, I just had the Kanye song in my head. Um, It was terrible. Um, So, no one man can have all that power, but we are not men. (laughs) Twist. Yeah, totes. Um, So, basically, the gamification of the show has been one of the, the main ways that people have been looking at it. So a game of thrones in which you either win or you die. Mm. People are constantly trying to figure out what position on the ladder, and indeed a ladder is a metaphor that's been used within the show itself. Um, And I'm not quite sure um, if it was Grantland, the the website run by ESPN that first popularised the idea of taking power rankings, which Mm. is a sports concept, and applying them to pop culture. I I remember Mark Lazanti doing Mad Men power rankings, and that's kind of where I first came across the concept. But there are Game of Thrones power rankings that you can come across on various websites. Everyone's always like, who came out of this episode with the most power? You know, what's a power move that people have done? 
um, <clears throat> here and there. And the characters always like to have, conveniently enough, they like to have, you know, um, long monologues about power. So basically, Varys has had this sort of power hard-on, as it were, because it's only ever a metaphorical hard-on with him. Bless. <laughs> <laughs> the Tyrion, for seasons, basically... Um, he, for, for seasons and seasons, he had a conversation with Shay about this in um, season three or four, I forget which. <laughs> Those two seasons kind of blurred for me. Um, but he's like, you know, Tyrion is really important. He's got the good family name, he's got the wealth, he's got political skills, he can manipulate people, and as he says in, in the most recent series, he's got compassion as well, which is something that very few people do on Game of Thrones. So uh, Varys is really rooting for Tyrion to be the, you know, the power broker of the show, his right-hand man, as it were. And so I'm finding it fascinating the way that the two of them have ended up in Marine in, in a very strange, you know, non-canon yeah. uh, journey. Another thing, I, I could have put together a whole presentation about the series' fascination with road trips. I love <laughs> taking people on road so trips. So many buddy movies in but the making. Like, the books, even that, like most people mm. spend most of their time just travelling and not meeting the people that they're supposed to meet. It's like <laughs> waiting for Godot stretched over <laughs> five, soon to be seven books. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think, like, uh, maybe it was season four where that became really obvious because that was the season where you had, you know, the um, Arya and the Hound show. Mm. That they love like a comedy double act. So um, I actually like Tyrion and Varys, even in that, that clip, which is from season three. Um, it, it was just really humorous. They're a great pairing. Um, so <clears throat> one of the main things, the, where does power reside? It resides in, in knowing the right thing. So Varys is the, the spider. He's got his network of little birds. They're always telling him things. But everyone in the show has got their own special sets of knowledge. Um, oh, that's my joke. Um, <coughs> so... <laughs> so obscure. I know, I know. Um, yeah, so this guy doesn't know anything. Um, <laughs> I love this. This is a uh, picture from season one where Thank it's clear you. that he and Sam just know, like, just bugger all. Um, and it, they probably still do know bugger all. And that's been, again, one of the key motifs in the show is how little Jon Snow knows and all the conspiracy theories about Jon Snow's parentage that other people know about, but maybe he doesn't. He's constantly in the dark. Poor old Jon. Anyway, maybe he's in the dark forever. <laughs> and there's Varys with Roz, his, um, his kind of chief bird. He um, brought her down from uh, Winterfell where she was like in the local brothel, and she became a very useful bird for him until uh, Littlefinger found out that she was spying uh, for Varys. And then <coughs> it ended very badly, but we've got another clip of that. Yay! Mm -hmm. um, another way that power resides is in a dynasty, in family. So a lot of the emphasis in Game of Thrones is about the different great houses of Westeros and how they're constantly vying with one another for power. Um, but one particular house um, emphasises its family power over every other house, and that's House Lannister, of course. Tywin Lannister takes pride in the fact that basically his dad, Titus, was not a great, like, lord. He was just a, an average lord, had these gold mines, pretty rich, but didn't have the political power. And it was his son, Tywin, who as a teenager took control and slaughtered House Rain that basically created the reigns of Castamere mythos that made House Lannister one of the most feared houses 
in the Seven Kingdoms. So basically, <coughs> it's Tywin's sheer will that is keeping House Lannister at the top. So after his death, you know, by Tyrion and Crossbow, um, his power kind of starts to leech away and we don't see the family power of the Lannisters in effect at all, really, in season five. In fact, we see the Lannisters being spectacularly, spectacularly powerless. Um, I, I do love this. This is um, some screen caps from Joffrey's wedding. You can see how Marjorie loves uh, having married into this family mm. and, and they're loving uh, how much Joffrey's enjoying that dwarf um, pageant that he had arranged for his, uh, his marriage. I also think that um, Cersei and Tom are an excellent family casting, what do you reckon? They look so great. Um, <coughs> but of course, uh, this is the other family that we were led at the beginning to think was the, the main family we would be following, the poor old Starks. I mean, and they're just, they're hopeless, you know? And that's because they value another kind of power. I mean, family is important for them, but the most important kind of power is honour, which I'll get to in a little bit. Oh, I just wanted to have that joke as well. The Baratheons. <laughs> They're not very good with the whole family thing. Oh. Not at all. Anyway. <laughs> um, wealth. So, the Lannisters, rich as a Lannister, is, you know, one of the lines from out of... I was just hoping you were going to explain that joke for the podcast audience. I was oh, the podcast. Oh, right. Basically, the No, the no, no. Joke. You don't have to explain the joke. <laughs> oh, I won't then. Um, so, wealth. Uh, now, the, the poor old beggar king... Um, <clears throat> Uh, Daenerys' brother, what's his name again? Viserys. Um, he just wanted a crown of gold, man. And then Drogo obliges in one of the, <laughs> the finest moments in season one and the Daenerys callously says, you know, fire can't hurt a dragon. And she's right, fire cannot hurt a dragon. But it was, it was wealth that Viserys really wanted um, and that's, that was his motivation. All, he grew up as a small child in Essos having to beg and, and stay on the, the sufferance of sort of people who wanted to see the Targaryens back on the throne and so he, he was humiliated. I, I kind of feel for him a little bit even though he was a total dickhead to his poor sister and a bit lecherous as well because you can't let a female character get through Game of Thrones without someone leching on her. It's just the rules. Um, <clears throat> the Tyrells. Um, now, the Tyrells are interesting because they are wealthy in land and resources, whereas um, the Lannisters' gold mines are running out, but the Tyrells actually own the, the, the breadbasket of Westeros. However, um, the High Sparrow points out to Elena Tyrell that basically, without the commoners to, uh, to tend the fields, to harvest all the, the, the wealth, um, the, the Tyrells have nothing. And so does Cersei. She thinks that because she's rich, she can buy the High Sparrow. And that's one of the biggest mistakes that she makes in season five. Honour and loyalty. Oh, the poor old Starks. They just get it wrong. And who else gets it wrong? Brienne. Aww. Brienne of Tarth. I find her so uh, sad because she, she wants to do the right thing, but she just is in the wrong place, doing the wrong thing all the time. But she's doing it out of the, the finest motives of all time. Poor old Brienne. I wasn't expecting this gift to actually work either. That's a bit exciting. Now, here's old Ned Stark with ice, the Stark ancestral great sword that later gets used to behead him in King's Landing and then it gets melted down by the Lannisters and turned into the two swords, Widow's Whale and Oathkeeper. Now, Oathkeeper, as we know, gets given to Brienne by Jamie. Oh, I'm a Jamie Brienne shipper. <laughs> Leave me alone, I am. No, 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 I, I, I'm... 
I could have had I could have had that other one where she's holding him in the bar. Anyway, <laughs> um, and then of course we see Brienne using Oathkeeper to keep her oath. Of course, she's left her watch where Sansa's finally managed to light that damn candle in the in the window. She leaves it mere seconds. Um, before Sansa finally lights the damn candle. But, you know, she gets to use uh, Oathkeeper on Stannis, whom she blames for the death of Renly Baratheon, her love. Um, and Renly is kind of hopeless because, as we've seen before, the Baratheons, they don't have family cohesion. They're at each other's throats. And they, they don't really have wealth. Um, all they've got is, like, their various sorts of beliefs. Renly is, is beloved as, as, like, a summer king, you know. He has little tournaments but he's hopeless as a, a, a leader. Stannis has the cruelty, but he's got this bizarre dependence on Melisandre, which I'll get to in a minute. Now, the love of the people. This is what Daenerys believes that she has, but as we've seen throughout season five, the people's love can be two-sided. <laughs> so, basically, there's poor old Tommen oh. trying to free Marjorie from, uh, from the Great Sept, and it's just not working because of, like, the people have enabled this this kind of violent uh, sort of, what would you call them? They're like jihadis, but like um, for the faith of the seven. <laughs> Supercharged word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hot take. Um, yeah, and of course we, we see that Cersei doesn't uh, come out well from her tangling with the faith of the seven. She thinks that she can run circles around the, the high sparrow and as we've seen, uh, she ends up very ashamed. Um, and now, of course, here's someone else who is both beloved and not beloved. Audiences love Jon Snow. And Jon Snow really, at one point, rallied the Night's Watch behind him. They loved the way that he defended the wall, you know, when the wildlings attacked. And there, there were so few of them. And they managed to win the battle anyway. And then, of course, Stannis comes trotting in the next day because that's the kind of thing Stannis does. Um, but then, of course, it's Jon's obsession with honour that leads him to want to safeguard the wildlings and to protect the overall realm over the, the narrow aims of the Night's Watch, and that's what proves to be his undoing. And because he's so obsessed with honour, he doesn't see that, that people are turning against him. He believes that other people have the same values as him, and they just don't. I mean, that kid Ollie was sharpening a blade for most <laughs> of season five, don't you reckon? <laughs> um, Self-transformation. I love Dark Sansa. Unfortunately, the show didn't really allow Dark Sansa to to fulfil her promise. I, I had this fan fiction where I just wanted her to totally dominate Ramsay, but that was not going to happen. <laughs> um, of course, Littlefinger is, is being her tutor um, in the dark arts. You can see they're both wearing their dark cloaks, so you can tell that they're dark. Um, and now the threat of force. Obviously, it's a violent show. We, we've seen a lot about the, how much violence is everywhere in Game of Thrones. Dracarys. And... Um, and then, of course, one of the greatest moments in the, in the show is uh, <laughs> the, the quote-unquote purple wedding. Um, <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just wanted to have that photo <laughs> there. Now, basically, Ramsay has become this main villain, uh, like this, this constant threat of violence. And like you were saying, Luke, it's, it's cartoonish. Mm. Like, he never really develops as a character at all. He just stays as evil as ever. And poor old Reek is just as broken as ever. This is from that episode where he has to pretend to be someone he is not, that is, Theon Greyjoy, um, and help Reek capture Deepwood Mott. Um, and then, of course, we've got the wedding. We can talk more about that. Um, being underestimated. Some people might seem a little bit powerless, but it's because we don't think of them as powerful that they can actually come up behind you and gouge your eyes out when you're in a brothel in, in uh, Bravos. Um, 
So we can see that, that Arya, she has a really dark arc. She, she starts off as just merely a tomboy and then she becomes this kind of avenging angel and then she finds a place where she can literally become someone that she's not in order to, to go under the radar, you know, with her um, oysters, clams and cockles. And then, of course, the, the fateful moment where Sir Marin Tramp meets his, his gory, very, you know, I find, found it to be a little excessively gory end. Um, I won't concentrate too much on sorcery and magic because basically the whole show operates in a world where we've got dragons, so like <laughs> magic's just part of it. But um, what's interesting is the, the faith that Stannis puts in Melisandre and her ways and how spectacularly she repudiates him uh, towards the end of season five. She's just basically, oh, all right, I was following the wrong guy the whole time. I oh. made a huge mistake. <laughs> yeah, no. Oh, sorry, Stannis. Um, yeah, but like not before she's literally torched his whole family to the ground. Um, oh, Stephen Bradbury. Um, basically, uh, if you don't know Stephen Bradbury, he's the guy who just kind of cruised by not falling over. He managed to win the gold medal for Australia. And there are some characters who just aren't doing anything much. And by doing so, they remain in the game. Prince Duran Martel uh, has been pretty much sitting in his fancy wheelchair um, in the water gardens of Dawn and not doing anything and allowing his clownish uh, sort of bastard relatives to, to get into skirmishes with Jamie and Bronn. Um, I find really interesting what his end game is. We don't really know. We haven't really seen what he's got planned, apart from putting Prince Tristane on the small council, which is maybe not going to go so well now. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, of course, we've got Littlefinger. He's everyone's favourite character. Well, no, he's not. But um, he's one of my favourite characters, and not just because I perversely find him sexy, but also because he's got this really nihilistic view that he'll just let everyone else crumble to the ground. He'll climb over their bodies in order to, to get to the top. He's utterly ruthless, and he's, he's the one who set the entire series in motion by persuading Lysa Arryn to poison her husband, John Arryn, thus bringing the Starks down to King's Landing. So I'll end my presentation with uh, Littlefinger's idea of what power is. So that's one of the few times that we actually see Littlefinger being, you know, bested by someone else. He's usually the one, you know, getting on top of someone else and putting them on the back foot. But, <laughs> hey, I love that <laughs> picture. Um, but we can see from that clip that Cersei was equally wrong. You can see the reins of Castamere on the soundtrack um, underneath that scene. She believes that her power is the power. But where her power comes from, it comes from her family, comes from her wealth, and it comes from her position in King's Landing. And we've seen that those can be so easily eroded. Thank you so much, Mel. No worries. Before we go any further, what happened to Littlefinger's accent between season one and two? <laughs> I was like, my like only questions are about Littlefinger and how you find him attractive and what country is he from? <laughs> he's from an imaginary... He's from the fingers, okay. <laughs> the littlest of them. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's a far northern province, you know, maybe mm. it's very isolated. Accents are, you know, very localised to the West Coast. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I, that was so comprehensive and you have clearly an encyclopedic knowledge that my only question was about your attraction to Littlefinger, but maybe we can go... <laughs> Do you know what? I'm so, I feel so dirty about this, but I just I find the Littlefinger and Sansa thing really interesting. Mm. Right. Uh, um, 
I mean, of course, we know that he is in love with her mum, and so that's creepy that she's like the reincarnation of, of her mum. But also, you wonder if he actually genuinely is into her or if she's just a pawn, mm. someone mm. else to be climbed over for him. You know, the way that he seemed not to really get how bad Ramsay was, but surely word of Ramsay's bad deeds has got out. You know, like it's yeah. absurd to think that like people don't know what he does. Yeah, I, th I think you assume that Littlefinger has absolute knowledge, right? He so basically, have, yeah. he knows what he's yeah. letting Sansa do by marrying yeah. uh, Ramsay. Yeah, um, but I guess he doesn't really care about her so much for her, because probably what even um, Catelyn represented to him was less, you know, a love object and more um, potential for furtherance of himself. Mm. And she was the, the grand totem, and so... He, when he couldn't get Catelyn, he ended up with the kind of younger sibling and then got sort of relegated off to the middle of nowhere. Like, you know, so I think, so for him, Santa still just represents basically power, king of the north, like that kind of vibe. And so it doesn't really matter what she has to go through for him to get to that point. Like at the end, she'll still be, you know, beautiful Santa that, you know, will be beholden to him. Yeah, I just, I find him really suave. I look <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I don't care, he's hot to me. <laughs> Um, we should move on to Luke Buckmaster's presentation. Uh, Luke is a film critic for The Guardian Australia and film and TV critic for The Daily Review. Tonight, he will be discussing the idea of Game of Thrones uh, being about fate versus destiny and how the show is fundamentally American or American. American, American. yeah. Um, yeah, thank you. Welcome, I've Luke. Sorry. Oh, thank you. <laughs> hey. So uh, I think presentation is quite a generous word. Uh, I, don't, I don't have a presentation, I'll be completely honest. Uh, but I do have a voice and we do have some clips, a couple of clips. So when I was um, in my screening room uh, binge watching Game of Thrones, uh, two things happened at roughly the same time, the latest season of Game of Thrones. Two things happened at roughly the same time. One was the ACMI said, would you like to come be part of this panel? The other one was my mum rang on the phone. Thus, you know, the, the implication being, would you like to answer the phone? And the answer to both of those questions was yes, because I, I love both, one a little bit more than the other. <laughs> um, and I was telling her, yeah, watching the Game of Thrones, it's really good. And my mum is not uh, the sort of person who likes to have danger dangled right in front of her face the whole time. So she's more probably more of a Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries uh, <laughs> type of person. It's insinuated, it's on the sort of peripheries, but it's not kablamo, kapow, exploding in crescendos of violence the whole time. Uh, so she asked me, um, uh, is it good, and uh, why is it good, and what's it about? And that kind of threw me. You know, it's like, why, why is it, what's it about? And if you start answering to someone who has no idea of Game of Thrones, if you start answering what it's about, you start sounding like a mad person. <laughs> or a 50-year-old virgin, or both. <laughs> so there's swords and kings and things in different lands, and it's Westeros, and it's too much for her. So that got me thinking, well, you know, What's it actually about? And when you ask most people what Game of Thrones is about, they'll often just give you one word, which is the one word Mel took and actually explain what it meant in the context of the series. The first time I think I've ever heard someone actually go into that level of detail and consideration, uh, which is power. So most people just go, yeah, it's about power. The word power is, in, is fundamentally kind of in the title of the show. You know, Thrones is very close to the word power. So then I started thinking, well, um, what words would, would I use to, to describe Game of Thrones? And I thought about it, probably a little bit too much. And I came up with four. And they were fate, destiny, individualism, 
America. Mm. And they all kind of flow on like in the narrative. Like hey? They all sound like America. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Manifest destiny. Indeed, yes. And never manifest fate. And that's, so one of the interesting things about um, fate and destiny is that they're often used in the context of uh, drama, context of fiction and drama, especially fantasy drama. So especially in narratives that involve kings falling by their swords, kings getting poisoned and queens, all this horrible stuff. In real life, um, so it's often used in, it's very common, but not to the, to the extent that we have it in Game of Thrones. The way they use fantasy, the themes of fantasy and destiny in Game of Thrones is next level stuff. And I'll, I'll sort of attempt to demonstrate some of that that's going through my head. Um, so to start off with those two words, like fate, okay. So fate has really negative connotations. It basically insinuates uh, a loss of control. We see that in fiction all the time, we see it in Game of Thrones all the time, and we can also see it in real life. So if you go home, for example, and you turn on the news, you might see uh, an article saying, or a news report saying that someone has fatally died in a, in a car accident. You, what you will never hear them say is that someone has achieved their destiny by dying in a car accident. <laughs> you don't, you don't, so, so destiny has, uh, it's, it's about, destiny comes from the self. And destiny is about individual will, individual power, and the ability to make a decision and then to enact a decision, which is fundamental to the core of individualism, which is all about you know, making a decision, having the free will to do so, <laughs> Uh, inside, in this case, uh, heavily politicised environments. Individualism, I'm just going through this one. So individualism is uh, core to the American dream. This idea that somebody can succeed against the odds because of their personal choices. So then I started kind of working through how that could possibly be presented in a way that people might find interesting or relevant or in the context of this show. So in terms of the crossroads between uh, fate and destiny. We often get in, in Game of Thrones these, these often very wonderful moments, wonderful, albeit fairly violent, where somebody thinks they are pursuing their destiny or a bunch of characters think they're pursuing their destiny and what they're actually doing is they're suffering their fate. If you keep those sort of two words in mind, you can start to see that the, the show is building up patterns. It kind of repeats itself in a lot of ways. Um, in terms of that combination, suffering fate, thought they were progressing destiny. Um, but there's also the reverse of that. So there's moments when you think that a character is uh, suffering their fate, but they're actually pursuing their destiny. So it's the, re it's the reverse. And this next scene is the reverse. And I thought we were, out, we were without vision, so I wrote some notes, um, but I don't think I need them. So, so it's basically the, the, the Tyrion on trial uh, scene. And this is someone, as I said, who, who thinks they're suffering uh, his fate, but he's actually engineering another kind of cogwheel in, in his destiny and propelling his own uh, narrative forward, which feeds into the other plot lines. Um, and there's so many of these plot lines coming out of everywhere that when heads eventually roll, uh, <laughs> you know, you can kind of swap one for another. Um, but the Tyrion plot line, I think, in, in season five is where it really got cool because it's one of those worlds collide um, sort of, sort of um, situations. Um, so uh, one assumes when we're watching that for the first time that perhaps he's met his fate, um, although that's obviously a phony assumption in this universe, but um, he's met his fate, but he's changed it to, to be another sort of cogwheel in, in his destiny. And that's a, probably my, one of my favourite scenes from, from the entire show. Um, 
not for that not for that reason, but because I think it illuminates why um, Tyrion is, is the, the crucial character, um, and it's not because he speaks most eloquently, which he does. It's not because he has an answer to everything and he's awesomely entertaining, which he is. It's not because he looks visually distinctive, which he, which he does. It's because he takes the fate and the destiny narrative and he spirals it into individualism. It is about succeeding despite what life has given you. He's working against the odds the entire show. So yes, he was born into a very privileged family, but in order for the, the narrative to kind of function in that sense, he kind of has to be. You can't get one of the, you know, the jester dwarves to come in and have that level of prominence. But that scene, he finally explodes and he finally says, my whole life, you know, this isn't, well, you saw the scene, but my whole life, I've been on trial because of who I am. Uh, and he succeeds anyway. So he fulfills really the, that kind of the great American dream, uh, that the kind of thing that runs through the central nervous system, that it, you can succeed with a bit of cunning, with a lot of hard work, with a couple of great lines. Um, the other, uh, I think, so the other crucial character is Daenerys, right? And, and she's crucial in this conversation about individualism. I keep saying that word. It's probably the most I've ever said that word in one, <laughs> one uh, ten minute bracket. Uh, but she's also quite interesting in this because we, we take for granted in, in um, well not for granted, but we're inundated with stories that in the Western world that basically tell us uh, we can be the hero or this person can be the hero. It's not necessarily the case in other periods of history in other you know, countries of the world right now. So you can go to Russia, it's a it's very different entertainment industry. They're coming up with some very different narratives. They reflect their social political attitudes. Uh, you go to North Korea or um, you're in Hitler's Germany or you're in Castro's Cuba. Yeah, these are very different situations. Um, but the dragon mother, so she is really the dangerous ideologue in all of this. And while she's probably the most, one of the most principled characters morally, uh, she's a dictator. She's a dictator, and the thing that makes her powerful is that she has a form of power that cannot be transferred to anybody else. So she owns the dragon, she, she, she could be killed, and then the dragons will storm everywhere, or they'll do whatever they do. But uh, her power cannot be transferred. And her people uh, are all slaves. They don't have any, well, not all of them, but her army have no idea about personal empowerment, no, no wish or, or no, um, uh, inclination, as far as I can see, to try and sort of topple uh, her throne. Um, so that's why I, I think Tyrion is, is crucial. Um, well, that's where it started from anyway. The, ne the next thing we can't uh, show because uh, there's some rights issues, but with the, 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 the last uh, most recent season. Um, but if we can, I think we've got some screen grabs. Uh, if we can tie them up. Um, so this takes the, the idea of it being a sort of American allegory uh, to some fun levels. You can, have, you can start having some fun and in interpreting this stuff a little bit more. Um, and I also think this is a, this is a really good scene. So um, it's in the, the, what's the, the Faith of the Seven Buildings. The Sept. Of, the Sept. The Sept. Um, and Elena is, is she's basically uh, trying to um, bargain to, to Sparrow. She's trying to um, blackmail him or, or um, bribe him essentially uh, because, you know, kids have been trial for you know, buggery and perjury, uh, as the show puts it. Um, and it's 
it's a really beautiful dialogue in this scene. She, she says to him, half the men and women, uh, half the men, women and children in this foul city break the sacred laws. You live among murderers, thieves and rapists and yet you punish Loris for shagging some <clears throat> perfume ponts and Marguerite for defending her brother. And he's impenetrable. Like you can't convince this guy otherwise. And he says in return, and I love this, and Jonathan Price has got such a, oh, it's the, the yeah. lilt in his voice, it's just amazing. Um, originally I thought, well, when's he going to come out as a full character, you know? Yeah. But they got there. Um, he said, have you ever sowed the field? Have you ever reaped the grain? Um, has anyone in your house, a, a lifetime of wealth and power has left you blind in one eye. You are the few, we are the many. And when the many stop fearing the few, and then he just walks off. Now, if you get fun, and we should get fun, uh, <laughs> that's really like the Occupy movement. Yeah. Am I not? It's the 99% versus the 1%. And the thing that kind of went a bit bad about the Occupy movement, or maybe not bad, bad's probably the right, wrong word, is it didn't really succeed. So, uh, you know, my prediction is that he's going to suffer some sort of comeuppance when Cersei comes back from her atonement walk and carries with her a bit of a vengeance. Um, if we were to extend this uh, sort of interpretation uh, further, uh, I just have some dot points here. Uh, the Iron some of these are degrees of uh, plausibility. Uh, the Iron Bank is clearly the World Bank. Uh, the Lannisters owe money. Tannis was bailed out. Uh, the existence of magic uh, is an explanation or an illustration that capitalism is not rational. Oh, oh, the thank you, thank you. The, the winter is probably the most obvious one. The winter is a recession. That's not really an interpretation. The winter kicks in, goes for years, fewer resources. Uh, incest, well, um, <laughs> it's the family-driven politics of the Bush and Clinton era. Faceless Men is clearly an ALP reference. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, the, the White Walkers, uh, I thought this one was good, um, but now I'm reading it and I was like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> their investment bankers are like at the, <laughs> at the, at the top, end of, top end of town, right? Yeah. Because when there's dead bodies, i.e. loan defaults, yeah. they just become, makes them more powerful. Right. And the wall is just a regulatory authority? Like. <laughs> no, that, that's just a normal wall. Don't get, <laughs> get crazy. Um, and I, I would add to that, uh, I think, and I was going to say you heard that here first, but knowing that there's so much Game, Game of Thrones chatter going on, um, I think Jon Snow will, will possibly return as a White Walker. Is that new to anyone? This, well, this is where, have you finished, is this the end of your presentation? Oh, yes, yes, on. this is the end of the presentation. All right, yeah. thank you. Yeah, Very thank you. Thank you. That was, you presented the perfect segue, because I was going to be like, what are you, how does Jon Snow fit into that? And I don't think that that's new to anyone. Is that concept new to anyone here, that Jon Snow might, not be dead like right. he is absolutely 100% not dead like because I think the the other point of the triangle that you were talking about in terms of like you know these individual characters I found that very like an interesting way of phrasing it because I think it's generally accepted that even within the kind of mysterious realms of George's imagination that basically the three central characters are Tyrion, Danny, and Jon Snow um, and they and if you think about it they all actually kind of fulfill the same sort of archetype like in having to sort of create their own stories. Like even John, who sort of, you know, grew up within the Stark family, he still had to sort of like lose man. everything, like, mm. and then build himself up within the context of the So Night's if you Watch. cut that off, that's a massive thread. That oh, absolutely. Is, yeah. And also the entire, like, I, I would, 
in some ways admire the ballsiness of just killing Jon Snow because yeah. like another one of the accusations that George R. R. Martin has faced is that he stopped being able to kill his characters, like um, which is perhaps a natural pro product of like, getting this far and him having to actually pick a central narrative somewhere along the line. But uh, like given how much foreshadowing there has been about Jon Snow's incredibly important part yeah. in the fight to come and potential union with like Danny and their way of like bringing together elements of ice and fire, and the entire thing is called a song of ice and fire. Like there is a lot of interpretation about this stuff out there. Um, like it would be madness as far as I can tell for Jon Snow to actually be dead. Well, we were touching on earlier how the conspiracy theories go pretty fucking deep. Oh, I don't so know how far you guys mental. have gone, but well, we have lost know, like, hours online. one about talking. Jon Snow's parentage, right? It's tragic that this is like thought of as basic now because some of them are mental. Yeah. The most mental one I've come across is Roos Bolton is a, 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 an immortal skin shifter. <laughs> anyway, but we'll talk about that another time. But, um, <laughs> so but the basic idea is that John is actually the offspring of Lyanna Stark, Ned's sister, and um, Rhaegor Targaryen, um, Daenerys' brother. Um, and hence, as a Targaryen, he is the rightful heir to the, um, the Iron Throne. Um, but also, as a Targaryen, it's like Targaryens have all these like magic dragon powers mm. that no other house in Westeros has. Yeah. Um, which I should have maybe mentioned in my own presentation, but um, the way that um, Valyrian steel was forged by dragon fire and the, the Targaryens came from Valyria originally. Um, Danny can speak Valyrian to the dragons um, and only she may ride the dragons. So what if, uh, as a Targaryen, the dragons will let other people of Targaryen blood yeah. ride them. Is that because she's, yeah. she's got three dragons. Yeah, I know, right? Also, Targaryens, super into inbreeding. Uh, <laughs> that is actually a family thing. They like yeah. to keep their bloodline strong, so we'd often, you know, get together. So the fact that, um, uh, yeah, that Jon and Danny share blood does not in any way stop them from, mm. like, doing a Lannister. I've also, I've also <laughs> heard the fan theory that Tyrion is a Targaryen. Yes, that is also, there is some suggestion that his yeah. parents Because his, um, his parents were living in King's Landing during the reign of Mad King Eris, and uh, the story goes that what if the king raped uh, Joanna, um, Tyrion's mum, and that Tywin tried to find, you know, tried to abort, mm. and that's why he turned out a dwarf. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> so and we could go. that's why Tywin's never liked Tyrion. It's not just because he's a dwarf, it's because he's a cuckoo. We could go down <laughs> the rabbit hole for so long, and that's what the internet is for, yeah. not this evening. I might throw it out to the audience for questions, if anyone had any. Um, these are the brains to pick, these three. Anyone? Oh, I think we've got one up in the back. Oh, there. yeah, right up the back. Uh, also, there's Melisandre, who oh, turned yes. up at the wall, of course. Um, one of my favourite um, characters, uh, or the, the um, character relationships, is between Tywin and Tyrion. Mm -hmm. um, in that scene that you um, chose, Mel, um, uh, there, was that, there was that moment where, effectively, Ty uh, Tywin is telling... Tyrion, how clever he is, and did you notice how clever I am, etc., yeah. etc. Um, why is it that uh, Tywin can hate Tyrion so much, yet um, yet he's he, he's still the only one that sort of thinks that his his son he believes his son is the only one that sort of understands how mm. smart he is. And that's like what makes them such a, a fascinating 
family because, you know, Tywin's pet son obviously is Jamie, but Jamie's let the Lannisters down in so many ways. Um, the way that Not one of them. <laughs> well, I don't think Tywin even knows, or if he does, he tries to sort of push it down, yeah. that whole um, incest thing, but um, <laughs> twincest. But the way that Jamie nicked off and joined the Kingsguard rather than being the heir to Casterly Rock, mm. that burned Tywin so bad. Because Jamie's this amazing warrior, mm. you know, he's handsome as all fuck. And, um, and then we've got Tyrion, who's really super smart, he knows how to do the politics. Mm. You know, he's an excellent statesman and he would be the perfect heir, mm. but he mm. just hasn't got yeah. the, the heroic qualities that yeah. Tywin wishes for his son. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I think, um, uh, what was I going to say? Tyrion, um, yeah, is the only one who, in a weird way, has never disappointed his father. Yeah. And that's why Tywin hates him because he's the only one that is, yeah, as you say, worthy, but he was sort of tarnished by his original sin in that <coughs> he killed his mother and was a dwarf. Mm. And so Tywin has just never sort of forgiven him for that, so he can't, like, let go of that to sort of, like, see that obviously, you know, yeah. Tyrion's the only one that could be trusted with the Lannister family. Mm. And then there's that weird mm. thing between um, Tywin and Tyrion and Hawes, like, mm. because you know the story about how when Tyrion was mm. a teenager, he met this village girl and had sex with her but then he was told that she was a prostitute who'd been hired and so uh, Tyrion was forced to watch all the Lannister men rape her in front of him because rape Game of Thrones and then um, he had to go last and then he was super sad and then he found out that she wasn't even a whore after all that she was just like the village girl that he thought at the start and, but it's set in Tyrion's mind this idea that he doesn't deserve love and that's why he always pays for sex and why he has this mm. conflicted relationship with uh, Shay and that's why it was so devastating for Tyrion to see Shay in his dad's bed and you have to wonder if mm. she had been in Tywin's bed the whole Before, time yeah wouldn't that be devastating yeah I think Tywin uh, you know there's a lot of the show people the family come up to him and ask him for things so he's in that position of prominence the whole time and he's, he, he's a very smart, one of the smartest people on the show. Tyrion's too. Mm. So there's like a double alpha male thing mm. going on there. He knows he's just as smart, if not more. And for me, that's probably why he's scared, of, him, scared of his son. For power. Or scared mm. of someone who perhaps is his son. Mm. Any more questions? Uh, no. oh. It seems like it's a general agreement that the whole Dawn storyline was useless. So what would sad. what would you have suggested they did instead to make it less useless? I mean, it's hard to know because even in the books, like it was hard work. Book four is hard, hard work. All the Greyjoy stuff, all the Dawn stuff. It's like <coughs> you can see how it's important to know about it now that you're kind of at the end of the fifth book, but it just never really picked up that much steam. My feeling about the TV show, though, was, because I was like, I reckon they'll be able to do it well on the TV show. Like, they did great with the Viper. Like, they're going to obviously have to trim back on all the sort of unnecessary exposition that George got up to in the books. But I, my suspicion is that there were so many big set pieces in this series that they ran out of budget super fast <laughs> and had nothing to contribute to the Dawn scenes. Because if you look at all of them, like, every single scene that is shot down there, <coughs> it is... <coughs> oh, sorry. It is hilariously sparse. There is just no one around. Mm. There's no extras. Like, it looks like this weird, underpopulated, <laughs> Sahara-style, like, world. It's just a very bizarre. Like, it never gives you a sense of this being part of the same world as the rest of it. So I think, like, 
all you just didn't like invest in any of the characters because it just felt ancillary and like cheapened. yeah cheap yeah. and ancillary to the actual storyline so i'm not sure how they could have like really razzed it up oh i was so hopeful mm. about the dawn scenes first mm. of all because they had you know the amazing locations in mm. spain but also because I thought that it was quite smart of them to take Jamie and um, and oh, yeah. down there rather than send off some random Kingsguard, which yeah. is what they did in the books. Um, and the way that they pared down the sand snakes to just three, I thought that was good because there were like seven of them or something in the in the books. Um, but the trouble was they just the sand snakes were like kittens, angry kittens. Yeah. Like they just they were so ineffective, and it was embarrassing to watch them be like, oh. I'm such a great warrior and, yeah. and then they get defeated in like five seconds <laughs> <laughs> and then they try and resort to like sexy stripping oh, and what was with that scene like so just didn't have to happen <laughs> it was you know foreshadowing for the, the poison yeah pretty much the only time that the whole dawn plotline worked for me is that final sort of sequence mm. when um you know she puts on her poison ivy lipstick and uh and gives her a smooch, yeah. Mm. We've got time for one more question. Mm, mm, mm. I think there was a question over this side from before. Okay. I'm sure everyone will hang around and happily talk afterwards. Um, there was that prophecy when it came to oh, the Queen. What's her name? Oh, Cersei. Cersei. Oh, yeah. yeah. And there was, I was watching online that there's some people who believe that the person who's going to actually have the Iron Throne is going to be Sansa um, going on the whole War of the Roses and how that actually panned out in the end. Um, I was wondering what would your thoughts be of like Sansa actually getting the Iron Throne? That is an interesting idea. Yeah, I mean, they have sort of they've put so much effort into obviously like preparing Sansa for a bigger role. Like, even mm. though this Taylor mm. of season five didn't really seem to pay out on that promise, but like, you know, even being under the tutelage of Littlefinger, you kind of go, surely that is some point that's going to be the thing where they sort of, um, you know, teacher becomes the student. Yes, like, you know, yes. she's going to break out of that. Once I was but the learner. Yeah, 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 she's going to break out of the relationship in some way. I mean, the Iron Throne's potential because it's, I mean, one of the interesting undercurrents of this show, I think, is the way in which. The even the people who I think are starting to represent what we would think of as good, like um, Daenerys, Jon, um, and Tyrion, are still potentially agents of something that will not provide a good thing for the world. Like um, Jon, I mean, who knows how he's going to be resurrected, White Walker or not? But like, um, like Daenerys is basically a power-hungry warmonger. Um, and she's bringing dragons back who were just huge destructive forces that wreaked untold havoc upon the world when they were still in force. And the White Walkers are coming as well and they may be conducted down by, you know, someone. There's sort of like so many forces outside of these characters' control that might be more important than their own sort of arc. So like when you're going, yeah, of course we want Daenerys to take the Iron Throne. It's like, well, that might not be, you know, the good sort of result for Westeros. Whereas... Who knows? Sansa taking the Iron Throne might be. Right? She might be like the Stephen Bradbury. When, <laughs> when the all yeah, just out. on the ashes. Like <laughs> but there is an element of the Who Done It, which is really mm. interesting. Like it's, it, I read in an article that uh, um, George has actually told the team, yeah. like, so they know who gets the throne. Uh, and I guess I don't know why he, why that's necessary. That's a necessary conversation. 
Well, because they, they, because they need... Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's like a it's real yeah, that, worry. Yeah, like, I guess so. Given also, how many people die in Westeros, it is a real concern. <laughs> yes, no, 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 yeah. um, but also, they're going to finish the TV show before the book. So, that, like, which is a really conflicting feeling, like, as a book reader and someone who's very invested oh, in, I guess... Me. Oh, thank you. That's... So patronising. <laughs> um, so but yeah, it's a weird thing because I'm like, you know, I like, I do love both things, and I love them in a separate way now. I think, but at the same time, like, I would much prefer to finish the world of the books before I finish the world of the TV show. But that is going to be an unavoidable thing. But does that mean he's sending drafts of the book to the screenwriters, and they're doing it in tandem? Well, he in the past he's actually written episodes of the show, but he's he's begged off that this season and mm. next season because he's he's got to concentrate on mm. writing actually the thing. Like the he's books. not going to any conventions either. He's not, he has been wasting a lot of time. Well, he probably thinks <laughs> it's it's time well spent. You know, coming up with you know side stories, prequels, mm. and you know. Yeah books about the history and mythology of Westeros, which, you know... Well, what we have to do is tweet to his Swedish <laughs> social media <laughs> person so yeah. he'll listen to the podcast so he can hear Mel say, you're wasting your time, <laughs> get into what yeah. we want to hear. It, it, is, it is always quite interesting just watching, like, the character... Because presumably, like, they know, like, all three of them, like Benioff, Weiss and Martin, know where the story is going to end, and they know that certain characters are going to be important and certain beats need to be hit to get there. So then it's very interesting to watch the TV show and the characters in the TV show is perfectly happy to kill off that you're like, oh, I thought they may have been important. Like, you know, from Stannis up top sort of thing to like, Solis, mm. like um, even my, my seller, like in the book, she just gets kind of scarred on her face, but she's still alive. And the fact they just kill her off, she's like, well, there goes that storyline. Like, you know, that just obviously is not going to have any further bearing on the story. So it's, yeah, it's always an interesting thing. I'm going to kill you all off right now, unfortunately. <laughs> so we can finish on uh, the surprise that Sean was talking about earlier. Oh, yeah, Special recording from Clem, who isn't here this evening. Clem Ford is a local feminist uh, and she writes for The Daily Life regularly. Uh, she's got something special for us that is the second instalment of a spicy little series that's exclusive to the studio here at Acme. Per her request, we've got a slide to help your imagination along, not that you'll need any help. So if you want to all have a listen to this and then we'll be done for this evening. I don't know how this happened. Yep. As he lay dying, Jon Snow wondered suddenly if he'd left the kettle on. <laughs> it was not thought, given that he'd almost certainly not left the kettle on, because leaving the kettle on wasn't the kind of thing that Jon Snow did. <laughs> Jon Snow was far more conscious of his possessions than that, having grown up without much of anything except for the deep, penetrating melancholy that comes from feeling like you don't belong, and the associated erotic self-loathing that comes from that. <laughs> if Jon Snow had had a kettle, he would be sure to be very careful about how and when he used it. He would make sure to only switch it on when he really wanted a cup of tea. And not just when he was randomly standing by the stove and thought he may as well switch it on as not. Even if it sometimes meant boiling the jug four or five times before ultimately forgetting that you were thirsty in the first place. No, Jon Snow needed to want a cup of tea so badly that he'd sat there for a few hours at least, pondering both his sadness and his increasing desire for a cup of tea until he determined to rise despondently and make his way to the tray on which the kettle sat, waiting for him to be sure enough about its use. <laughs> the knowledge of the sad reverence with which he viewed items either belonging to him or just existing near him was the first reassurance that Jon Snow had not, as he momentarily feared, left the kettle on even as he lay there dying. The second reassurance 
that a kettle had not been left on was that Jon Snow wasn't immediately sure of what a kettle even was. In fact, he'd never even heard the word before it suddenly popped into his head, bringing with it anxiety and the vague feeling of having turned up to school without any pants on. It sounded a little like metal, which in turn sounded like nettle, which correspondently sounded sort of like spittle. Jon Snow knew it wasn't any of those things because he had an image of it in his head as clear as the eyes of a white walker. He had this strange feeling that he may have been remembering something that hadn't happened yet, in a place he hadn't yet visited. The whole thing was making him very confused, and perhaps even sadder than he'd ever felt before in his entire life. There were so many things to feel sad about now, his impending death being a fairly good place to start. <laughs> Tears began to wobble down Jon Snow's cheeks. They moved slowly, as if even they, too, were racked by an unrelenting ennui. <laughs> Had it really come to this? Was this really the way that things were going to end? Lying here in the cold, dark, wet of night, not even the chance to sit and gaze one last time across the wall, counting the many ways life had been cruel and unfair to him, before this final injustice, stabbed by his own men, and not in the way he'd always secretly, desperately hoped for. <laughs> As the light grew ever darker, Jon Snow thought of Rob Stark once more. With the memory of Rob ploughing him wildly by the Whit River, bringing him to the brink of ecstasy and sending him tumbling over a ravine of gut-wrenching pleasure, Jon so Jon Snow's shame staff stiffened, and he died. When pressed later, Jon Snow would say that he couldn't quite remember what had happened next. One minute he was dead, the memory of Rob Stark's tight buttocks ushering him across the divide. The next he was sitting up in a strangely furnished room with what appeared to be the sun streaming brightly through the windows. Across from him, a rotund-looking man sat, his face hidden by a grizzled beard while a cap sat jauntily <laughs> atop his head. Ah, the man declared, you've arrived. He grinned at Jon Snow, who was beginning to feel not only very sad that his death hadn't gone as planned, but also very afraid. Where, where am I? Jon Snow asked the man. He suddenly noticed that his bad place was still standing straight up, arrested in the dying thought of Rob Stark's bare chest and glistening nipples. Jon Snow shifted in his seat to try and adjust it. He thought about crying, but was worried that this might just exacerbate his condition. Instead, he focused very, very hard on the man's bushy beard. Was he a wizard? Perhaps it was God. Oh, well, the man chuckled. I suppose I am, in a way. Jon Snow gasped. You can read my thoughts, he accused. Of course I can, replied the man. I created them. I created you, dear boy. Your words are my words. Your thoughts are my thoughts. Your desires, he winked at Jon Snow, are my desires. <laughs> Jon Snow looked suddenly at the ground. It made him more than sad to think of this man knowing the thoughts and feelings that kept him warm at night. It made him uncomfortable. Oh, come now, the man said. There's no need to feel uncomfortable. I mean, it feels a little uncomfortable the first time. It always does. But it gets easier. He winked again as if he'd made a very clever joke. <laughs> I don't understand, Jon Snow suddenly cried, feeling very sad and very small. What is this place? Dear boy, this is where the magic happens, the man exclaimed. From the corner of the room, a bubbling sound began to spill over and Jon Snow heard a loud click. Look, let's have a cup of tea and I'll tell you everything you need to know. The man moved over to the now boiled kettle and began to pour hot water into two mugs sitting alongside it. I knew you were coming, so I got this ready for you, he said. 
They always feel a bit jittery at first, but they soon settle down. He crossed the room again and passed Jon Snow a steaming mug of tea. Jon Snow sipped it and was delighted to find it was sweet and syrupy. He had a feeling that this was how he had always taken his tea, even though he had never taken tea before. <laughs> Who are the others? Jon Snow asked the strange man. Hmm? The man replied. You said they, Jon Snow said. Who are they? The man looked at Jon Snow in astonishment. Why, the other characters, he boomed. All of them are here, or will be when I've finished with them. Ned's been with me since the beginning, of course, but he was joined pretty quickly by Robert. I tell you, those two can hold their liquor. It's been a nightmare keeping up with them. No wonder these bloody books keep taking so long. <laughs> he paused to his tea. Catelyn tries to keep them in line, but things have never been quite right between her and Ned since... Well, at this he looked awkwardly at Jon Snow. Since me, you mean, Jon Snow spat bitterly. Catelyn. Ugh. She would have to be here. Jon Snow scowled at the ground. He probably had the worst luck in the whole wide world. It made him feel both angry and miserable, and knowing both of these feelings were, within, were with him made him feel a little bit better. <laughs> Wait a minute, Jon Snow exclaimed, looking up hopefully. If all of them are here, that means... He gulped. Rob Stark, is he around? The strange man chuckled. Why do you think I brought you back here, boy? I tell you, it wasn't for the ratings. I'm going to cop a huge kick in the nuts for this one, but I just couldn't stand to see that handsome fellow moping around anymore. Rob Stark was never meant to be a sad sack. That's what I wrote you for. <laughs> Jon Snow felt something akin to what he thought was happiness and hope and what that might feel like. <laughs> so you mean Rob Stark has missed me? Of course he has, boy. Can't get a word out of him other than intermittent whisperings of your name. Rob Stark was created to lead an army, but this whiny, low, lowing, miserable, lukewarm sponge act he's got going on? Ugh. Well, I'll be honest with you. It's depressing as fuck. As the unfamiliar word, as the unfamiliar man said that word fuck, two things happened. The first was that Jon Snow thought about being fucked by Rob Stark, <laughs> as he had been so passionately that time by the river, when Rob Stark had promised to love him and have him rule by his side forever. The second thing that happened was that Rob Stark suddenly, out of nowhere and completely unexpectedly, <laughs> walked through the door. <laughs> Jon Snow! Rob Stark boomed in his big, booming, sexually delicious voice. <laughs> I have been waiting for you. <laughs> Jon Snow threw himself to the ground at Rob Stark's feet and looked up at the man who had haunted his dreams for months. His needle was beginning to stir, straining against his pants almost as if it were willing itself up to Rob Stark's mouth. <laughs> Rob Stark! Jon Snow managed to scream and whimper at the same time. Oh, Rob Stark, how I have missed you! Jon Snow was gripped by a sudden animalistic need to be suddenly filled by all of Rob's appendages. <laughs> he tore through the buttons on Rob Stark's trousers and hungrily consumed the hot, meaty flesh which waited for him inside. Rob Stark moaned and clasped his hands around Jon Snow's willing head as Jon Snow, in turn, clasped himself around Rob Stark's willing head. <laughs> After a moment or so, he pushed Jon Snow from him and watched as he tumbled to the ground. Turn over, Rob Stark <laughs> commanded Jon Snow, who almost came in his hessian pants right there. <laughs> Jon Snow did as he was told. 
Rob Stark positioned himself behind him, pulled the barrier between them down, and plunged his manslaught into the warm cavern that had been waiting so long for him to return. Rob Stark! <laughs> Jon Snow screamed as Rob Stark groaned behind him. The two of them, separated for so long by callous plot lines and misplaced love affairs, <laughs> were finally returned to one another. With a roar, they both hurtled towards eruption, collapsing in one another's arms and shivering there. They were two halves made whole once more. A song of ice and fire. A storm of swords. <laughs> now this, George R.R. R. Martin said to himself, <laughs> is what a dance with dragons looks like. <laughs> he moved over to the kettle in the corner of his office and set it to boil as Jon Snow and Rob Stark lay dishevelled and spent on his carpet. Lost as they both were in a dream of spring. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much on that note. Um, thanks, Clem. Thank you, Luke, Mel, and Luke. Thanks you all for coming. Um, I guess good luck for everyone for season six. <laughs> Thank you so much. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.